All right. Welcome to River of Suck podcast episode. Oh my gosh, is this 20 now? I've made it to 20 and I'm still not dead yet. That's super cool. Uh, my special guest today is Jonathan Scales and he's out in New York City today. Is that right? That's right. Nice. I'm here in Brooklyn. Ah, cool. Well, it is my first online podcast interview, which is a a brand new experience. Uh, I've always been about that in-person vibe so we could jam some music together. But you know what? The world is a crazy place right now, and I'm just grateful to talk to you at all. <laughs> How are you doing today, and man? Yes. I'm doing great. I can't complain. Nice. Yeah, my, uh, as I told you before, the we started recording my Wi-Fi was down, so I came to my friend Adam's house. There's Adam right there. Hi, Adam. Adam Aloof, he's a very amazing percussionist. Nice. And he has a great Wi-Fi connection. Oh. (laughs) Man, maybe you could hook up some of that good Wi-Fi up. We just don't have any good Wi-Fi in these mountains, so. That's funny. (laughs) But we got mountains, so you got to pick your battles. Cool. That's right. (laughs) So you are a steel drum player. Do I have the, my That's terminology correct. right? You know, um, there's a steel pan, steel drum is the same thing. Um, depends on who you talk to. That's a whole kind of like a political thing. But if, if you're from Trinidad, you're going to call it pan or steel pan. My colleagues and I will say pan. But if, if someone says steel drum, you know, that's okay. Yeah. Okay, so I know you're hip to Victor Wooten. Yeah. He did a workshop when I was at Berkeley, and he said, you got to be the youest you that you can be. And I was like, oh, man, that's deep. I love that. So I guess I want to start with what makes you feel like your youest you? What makes me feel like my me is to me? (laughs) Yeah, or or how did you Um, you get there, you know? You know, that's a very deep question to start off with. I would say right (laughs) off the bat, just... Realizing what are the things that make you happy and not being afraid to do those things, even if they make you less money or if they make you less popular or anything like that. So like for me, like even being a composer, that's not something that inherently makes someone a lot of money, you know? I hear that. So (laughs) yeah, so I, but I took that, I took that road as a composer because that's what I love to do. Um, Also, I, I love to like learn languages and, you know, I like to study grammar from different languages and things like that for fun. And, you know, that stuff makes me the me is me, even though it might not translate into something that's like, that you can instantly convert into dollars per se. Mm. Um, And it might not be the most popular route, but I feel like being the USU is just following down the path of what makes you the happiest. That's it. Nice. Well, you mentioned kind of the business of composing. I'm a composer too. It's interesting though, I think in pursuit of the USU can actually in the long run be a better way to make money because you're not just being somebody else. You're saying you make the music that makes you happy. I think uh, in the short term, that's rough, right? That's how, that's how people wait tables in New York while they're brilliant musicians. But well, you know, it's all, it's all part of the process. It all depends on how you look at it, you know? Yeah. Because even when I was first starting off, in North Carolina, I worked random jobs. I worked 
I worked a random job as a dishwasher one time. I worked a random job in a factory. Um, but I was still being the me as me because the end goal was doing what I'm doing now, like being on this path. And all that was part of being on the path for me. So I never saw any of that as like, oh, now I'm having to give up or now this sucks because yeah, it was all part of me being me still. Even if I was like working another random job in order to like keep pursuing music, that's all part of the whole journey. Luckily, I don't have to do that anymore. Oh, but. yeah. <laughs> that's awesome, man. I, I want to hear more about your journey because I don't know if all my listeners know about your music and where you came from. So tell me about the journey. I mean, you're asking all these all these existential questions. Ah, it's the River of Suck you podcast. Know, <laughs> hmm. Most of those type of questions, you can definitely go down the rabbit hole and find that, you know, like I came from a military family that moved around a lot and I started playing saxophone. I was in the sixth grade and then, you know, I started doing like marching band things in high school, which led me to wanting to be a composer in college where I, I went to study uh, composition at Appalachian State in North Carolina and I picked up the steel pan there. So, and then from there I got exposed to jazz and funk and all kinds of fusions of world music with other things and I was already there to be a composer, so I put all those things together, and that has taken me all over the world. Nice. And and you've got, is it six or seven albums under your own name? Hmm. Seven. I, th- I had to think about that for a second. <laughs> yeah, because... I'm pretty sure I, I think I have seven albums out. Because I think your bio says six, but then there's your latest EP. So that's, that's how I... You know what? I need to update the bio. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> I think EPs count as albums. I I hand out an EP. You know, I don't e- I don't even count that as an EP. It's funny, like Mind State Music, I count as a, as as an album. It's a short album, but yeah, it's an album nonetheless because it's it's a complete statement for sure. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, totally. Well, maybe it was Spotify that told me it was uh, an EP. Maybe that wasn't your language. <laughs> I don't know. Enjoy your .007 cents, man. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, one of the reasons that I got in touch with you is because I saw your Tiny Desk concert and you were talking about this fake Buddha concept that you had. And I, I loved what you had to say about that. And I think it relates strongly to the River of Suck. Like, tell me about the fake Buddha and how does it inform your life and your music? All right. So as I talked about on Tiny Desk, I came up with this concept called Fake Buddha's Inner Child. And the fake Buddha is a concept that I came up with that was basically like this outer shell that we kind of use to cover ourselves psychologically and emotionally. And the fake Buddha is a part that can with that we think can withstand all the trials and tribulations and rough emotional roller coasters of the world in the same way that, you know, this idea of the Buddha which, you know, I, I'm not a spiritual expert at all, you know, <laughs> but this idea of the Buddha that can like withstand all these things, no matter what you say to him, he's able to process it in the most natural way. That's this very um, non-conflicting and the path of least resistance for every possible c- scenario. I feel like we all think that we can handle everything that well. And, and that idea that we think that we can handle it the crazy world with such grace, I call that the fake Buddha (laughs) because it's not something that we can, I feel like you can't really attain it. That's the whole point of like trying to attain this thing. It's like you reach for it, but it's, it's 
un, it's kind of unattainable, but you have to at least try to reach toward it, you know? Yeah. So yeah, to me, that's, that's the fake Buddha. And the inner, the inner child is the part that where all your, you know, depression and anxiety, stress, and all these related things kind of come out of that. Um, and the fake Buddha is the thing that, you know, encapsulates all that. That's the thing that people see, you know, they see your expressions, they see what you post on Facebook, mm-hmm. they see how you handle situations, they, they see that. But then the, the inner child is what comes out when the fake Buddha falls apart as it's going to because, you know, it's like a, it's like a facade almost ah. like the facade that you can handle the issues of the world and the facade that, that, you know, your life is together and all those things. Cool. I love that. Now I just have to ask, I mean, have you, you said you're not a spiritual expert, but have you, have you gone down like any kind of Buddhist path at all? Or do you feel like it's kind of like a, not really like I kind of, <laughs> I hear different concepts. Like I, I hear about things in passing. Like if I hear someone talking about something, but like I haven't gone down the rabbit hole, you know? Yeah. I hear that. I'd started talking about this yeah. river of suck stuff and people are like, Oh, that's kind of some like Zen stuff. It's like, Oh, well I haven't been paying attention to that stuff as much, but, but it makes sense. It's just like, Use sense. use your head. How do we be better people? Sometimes it's uh it's not easy. So I think talking about this stuff is really the a conversation that that helps us because emo- okay. So here's the river of suck. <laughs> the river of suck comes from one of my mentors, who's a mandolin player named John McGann, and basically you're standing at one edge of the river of suck. You're on your comfort shore. Behind you is your comfort cave. And across on the other side, you can see future versions of yourself who can do the things you wish you could do now. But the problem is in between you and the other side is raging whitewater rapids of uh, rocks, whitewater rapids, all kinds of junk floating in the river and thought piranhas, which are those uh, negative thoughts that pop into your head. Those little voices that try and sabotage your good vibes when you're when you're trying to achieve that flow state, you're trying to be a good person and they're just like, you're not good enough. <laughs> All that kind of stuff. Got you. So that's the river of suck. I, f- I feel like it's not, I mean, I don't think it's the same thing as the fake Buddha, but I think these concepts can like live in this um, universe of like imaginary stuff floating around our minds that that helps us deal with these like rough patches tough emotions and things that happen to us that aren't easy i don't know what do you think (laughs) you know i feel like both of those concepts are kind of like tools like Mm kind of like fairy tales you know how fairy tales are tools that will help you to navigate real life yeah that's the goal of, of fairy tales and fables and things like that they're kind of like fairy tale, fable esque concepts mm-hmm. that can help you to navigate things in life. Because, like, if anything happens to you that is contrary to comfort, you can think about either of those concepts as like a map to be like, okay, I think right now those are the thought piranhas, or like right now I'm in this part of the river, you know, and that could help you to go through it. And in the same way, if you're in a situation, you can think, okay, 
what's happening to me right now is my outer shell that I tried to put out as a facade is disintegrating. And now I'm starting to feel this anger, this rage, like this or that. So I need to navigate from there, you know? Yeah. Like, do I just try to cover that? Do I, do I try to cover that up or do I just let it all out? Or do I just like, you know, like where do I navigate from here? So I think that, I think that both of those are kind of tools that help you to, to navigate from that point. Right. Onward. Yeah. And I, I think as men, it's been a hard path to really understand what emotions am I feeling? Can I even admit them to myself? And can I talk about them? When you're talking about like putting it away versus dealing with it, correct me if I'm wrong, but your fake Buddha concept would strongly advise to to feel your emotions and to deal with them. Am I following you right there? You know, it's interesting that you have put thought into this because I think that's as far as I went with my <laughs> conceptualizing. You know, I didn't like write a book about fake Buddhas in a child. Oh yeah. It was just about a very specific thing. So what, what I do like about it is it's making you think more into it. And that's the kind of beautiful thing about art is it like, uh-huh. you know, I just, I just put it out there as an artist, mm-hmm. you know, my concept of fake Buddhas in a child for me, it doesn't go beyond just the basic concept of the facade and then the part that, you know, that the facade that's covering up all these negative emotions that we're trying to deal with. Right. That's it. And then wherever someone takes it from there, that's up to them. So that's really fascinating to see your perspective on that. It's cool, though. I mean, I know you're like, oh, I have this concept and I just put it out there, but I think it has legs. I mean, I think I, I think it's I think you I think you're just scratching the surface. And I think this concept of fake Buddha's inner child is going to help guide you. And I think it could help guide our listeners, which is why I wanted to talk to you Whoa. about it. <laughs> um, well, that's. This is really deep. <laughs> so okay, so yeah, here's a, you know when I first when I wrote that song. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh no, I'll I'll hear about the song because you you have a song. It's on uh your second to last record, I think. It's like the first track. Yep. Right. Yeah. It's the first track on the album Pillar. Yeah. Um, but when when I wrote that song, I actually was going through a lot of crazy things in life, and I locked myself in a room and said. I need to write a piece of music that is going to like bring me to this calm place. So the song itself is actually meant to be a lullaby to the inner child that's inside of the fake Buddha. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, the song itself is supposed to be like a soothing melody that's supposed to be kind of like this. It's like this meditative, like even the rhythms and the, the, the chords are like really meditative. Mm -hmm. And the concept of that is to kind of, almost subdue the raging inner child part. You know what I mean? Nice. So yeah. Or to soothe, maybe subdue is a strong word. Uh, <laughs> I like, I like the idea of soothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so maybe I could get like real literal with it for a second. All right. Could you imagine a situation where, you're feeling something and then you use this concept to get through it. Like what is the practicality of like, like how do you use this? Like if you're walking down the street and someone's, someone's in your space or, you know, 
Um, let's see here. How do you use that concept? Okay, first of all, I'll have to say that your concept <laughs> of the river of suck or whatever, I feel like that's more applicable that anybody could use in any second. I feel like this is more of a aware, of an awareness thing. Mm-hmm. I feel like your concept is more of like a tool that's like, okay, if I think about this, then I can, I can really go forward and navigate through whatever's happening in life. Yeah. I feel like this, the fake Buddha's inner child, that's more just like a consciousness thing of like, I see what's happening here. But how to apply it, like, like for example, you well, know, that, if you're yeah. having like a, a relationship problem or something and you're being really tough about it, but deep down inside you have like really you know, sensitive emotions about it, but you're being just really stern and tough and acting like it doesn't bother you and acting like you can deal with it and acting like it's no problem. That's like a real life application of like, you know, the reality is you're not able to handle the situation. That's the, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Cause you're human. The reality is you're not able to handle the situation in the most graceful Buddha like way. Um, but you have this outer shell, which is the fake Buddha that is putting on, that is like presenting that you can deal with it and that it's no problem and it's not affecting you at all. Wow. Okay. Like water off a duck's back. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But in reality, <laughs> you can't deal with it and that's eating you up inside and it's, it's going to like, you know, that's, that's an issue. So like what I'm trying to say is I feel like that's more of a consciousness thing. So like, yeah. I feel like this tool is just like a tool of consciousness. Now you need more tools to get beyond that. Right, right. <laughs> Like the fake Buddha is, it's almost like, it's almost like saying like, you know, this is, this is the sign of high cholesterol, right? <laughs> Knowing the sign of high cholesterol is just that you just figure out that you have it. Yeah. That's it. And then from there you, have, you need other things like a diet or exercise mm -hmm. or like go to the doctor. You need to do other things to eat, to fix that. So fake, fake Buddha's inner child, that's just like, it's just a thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I've never, I've never thought about it this much. You're making me think about it. But now that I'm thinking about it, it's just the realization of, it's like a consciousness, something to be aware of. That's it. Yeah. You know? I love it. So like, if you're in a situation, you can sit there and be like, you know what? I see what's happening. I had, I had an outer shell that put on this front, but in reality, I'm not able to face the situation that I'm in, therefore, I'm having a lot of stress. I'm having a lot of anxiety. I'm having a lot of depression. I'm having a, lo a lot of just these negative thoughts because I haven't faced the fact that I can't face the fact of what's happening. <laughs> That's cool. You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's making more and more sense. So I don't know why. I just had this, I had this image appear in my head of like, like you're almost like your soul or like uh out of body version of yourself, like floating above you and the situation that you're in and kind of like trying to observe almost as like a third person, like what is really going on? Like I'm feeling these things, I'm making these actions, but is this really what, uh, I guess you're saying that's the, the inner child. Is this really being true to this inner child right now? Like a, <laughs> like a transparent floating. I don't know. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> That's I, I can't even wrap my head around that right now. <laughs> That's next level. <laughs> this needs to be a uh, you know the midnight gospel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We love that. Yeah, this needs to be a midnight gospel episode. Oh, nice. Yeah. Do you know that guy? 
Not personally. Ah. Got to get his number. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Because right now we're being shot at by aliens or something. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> When it comes to like heroes, you've had a really interesting journey Um, and your bio says it pretty good, but something, something Flectones were, I mean, would you say like the Flectones was your, one of your biggest musical influences? For sure. I mean, I would say that Bale Fleck in particular, I mean the Flectones as a band, but Bale Fleck in particular was a big influence on me and it wasn't. It wasn't like I heard Bale Fleck for the first time and it was like, oh man, I want to do that. It was uh-huh. more like I listened to Bale Fleck and I was like, I feel like that's what I'm trying to do. And that's what I'm already kind of doing. Yeah. In terms of like having an instrument that is not really seen, uh, an instrument that's seen in a certain way, but being played in the context of something else. Mm-hmm. I feel like, Yeah. It inspired me in that way. I was like, oh, cool. Like, Baleflex doing this. And he's, of course, he's like a million years ahead of me in terms of, like, he's older. You know, I'm just a college student or whatever at that point. But at the same time, it was like, oh, snap. Like, that's what I do. Yeah. It, it was almost like this kindred spirit kind of thing. Wow. Like, like, that's what I do. I'm just at the beginning of my career. He's, our, he's like, way advanced. <laughs> but I'm doing that, too, in my own way. Yeah. So it inspired me in that way. So, yeah, he's a hero for me. And he was on the Tiny Desk concert, as you saw. So, yeah. So you have this song lurking about like you trying to like meet them at a Flectones concert. Yeah. Lurking. <laughs> lurking. Lurking. There's a, there's, yeah, L U R K I N apostrophe. It's lurking. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so, um, the, yeah, the lurking story, in case you haven't heard it, I used to show up to all the Flecktone shows, and I would always try to talk to Bale Flag. And, you know, I got to know Victor Wooten and all those guys from always showing up, and they were always really nice to me. But Bela was always kind of standoffish. Hmm. And, um, you know, I would drive five hours to go see him, four hours to go see him, wherever they were. And there were several times where I would walk up to Bela hoping to talk to my favorite you know, 16-time Grammy-winning virtuoso banjo player. <laughs> and he would just see me and say, he pointed me and say, lurking. And then he would just go about, he, he wouldn't even say hello. He wouldn't even say, hey, Jonathan. He, he said lurking? Lurking. <laughs> yeah, that's where lurking comes from. <laughs> that is hilarious. So, so, it, so at first it kind of it made me mad a little bit because I'm like, man, you know, I'm just this young musician up and coming trying to like pick the brain of like my hero. Oh, man. And he would just be like, lurking. And then he he would just go on the tour bus or go backstage or whatever, and then that was it. <laughs> just drove all this way, and he just pointed at me and say, "Lurkin." <laughs> so I wrote I wrote the tune, <laughs> "Lurkin." Like I wrote that in the style of the Flectones, and I kind I was kind of mimicking banjo, and it was kind of like a fun shout out to that. But you know, we we got over that those times, and you know, now Bale Flex on my tiny desk. So yeah, so there's that. <laughs> yeah, so. I mean, a lot of people get really intimidated by their heroes. They're like, oh, I could never be like that. They're just so infinitely greater. So you have to make a conscious choice to be like inspired by them as opposed to deflated. Like, oh, man, I'll never be that good. 
Well, there's that, but there's also uh, inhibition that you have to let go of, if that's the right way to say it. Mm -hmm. um, like, for example, most people don't want to approach their, if they, if they have like a musical hero, they don't even want to approach them because they already feel like they're not good enough or something, you know? Now, luckily for me, that part of my brain does not work <laughs> at all. So when I <laughs> no shame. So when I saw Victor, yeah, when I saw Victor Wooten, like when I was a, I was probably a junior in college. When I saw Victor Wooten, like hanging outside of the venue, I just went up to him and was like, "Hey, man, I play the steel pan. Um, can I like play with you guys at Soundcheck?" And so the first time I actually played with the wow. Flectones, I was a junior in college, and I just jammed with them after their Soundcheck on the stage and for like five minutes and that was it. Um, but for some reason I had the, something in me, nothing in me said, Hey, that's Victor Wooten. Like, don't talk to him. I had the opposite thing. I went up to him. I was like, Hey, I played, I play steel pan. Can I jam with you? And he was just like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so that must've been like, <laughs> that must've been like 2003 or 2004, probably like 2004. Wow. So but that, that part of my brain, that part of my brain developed over the years. So like now I would second guess, like, you know, I don't have that. I don't have that same like innocence where I just go up to someone and just say, Hey, can I jam with you? So now I'm going to second guess it and be like, you know, do I really need to do this? Uh, you know, like, but in my early years, I kind of let all that just, I didn't think about that. Like even the idea of getting a degree in music composition which is that's my degree like even my teacher for the degree when he, when I told him that I was going to go out into the world and write music and do what I'm doing now he freaked out because you know most people on this path they go and they get a doctorate or a master's and then they go on and teach and things like that and I didn't want to do that so I didn't have that thing in me that said hey you should take a, a safe career path yeah I mean, obviously yeah. it works so out. I jumped, I jumped off the ledge. It yeah. worked out, but I jumped off the ledge early. You, it sounds like you dove head first into the river of suck. You're just like, I'm ready. I'm, I'm going to play with yep. Victor. I mean. Yeah. So to use your, your analogy of the, the river of suck. Yeah. Um, I didn't even see it as the river of suck. I saw it as like, oh, you just have to go across this river to get to the other side. Okay, cool. Let's go. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> nice yeah well i mean yeah. so so i i would say you have to suck at something before you could be good at it because people people quit when it's hard and they don't and they want to sound good and they want to be like loved by everybody and appreciated but it does take a certain amount of like going for it without worrying about the consequences of like what are they going to think about me i mean it sounds like you have a your your thought right. piranhas are mostly just egging you on to like try new cool things, and I <laughs> I love I love the idea that you just you you focus so much on these musicians that you sh kept showing up right. It's not you're not talking about one time. You're talking about like a long like years that you kept showing years. up. I mean, I have so many stories. Yeah. yeah, like sorry to interrupt, but like I mean, yeah, there's yeah. one story where like with Victor Wooten where um they had a show in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I was living in Asheville, North Carolina. And um, I didn't have enough money to buy a ticket and go to the show. But I drove two and a half hours to Knoxville <laughs> just to be, just to like hang out before the show, just 
in the off chance that they might be hanging around outside. Wow. Just to like network and just to talk to them. Yeah. And I, I drove two hours and parked my car and <laughs> walked up and Victor Wooten was sitting outside the tour bus eating a quesadilla. <laughs> and I sat there with Victor Wooten for like an hour and a half and just like, you know, talked to him and just, and then, then I went home. <laughs> I couldn't even afford to like, I couldn't even afford to see the show. Yeah. But I bet you learned something from that quesadilla hang. I mean, <laughs> yeah, definitely. I learned, I learned a lot of things and, you know, I, you know, I got to know him more and that was part of the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause to him at that time, I was just some random kid who always showed up, you know, it's and like, now we work together basically like, um, he, he had a festival or he has his, uh, his, his online camp now that was the, the Victor Wooten, uh, the base nature camp. Yeah. And he has various camps that he normally does in the summer. But now because of the coronavirus, it's virtual. Right. And I mean, he called me like a month ago to say, hey, hey, Jonathan, can you can you come as a guest on Zoom tomorrow? <laughs> tomorrow. So <laughs> it's come a long way. <laughs> yeah, it's come a long way from like, all right, stalking those guys and driving two hours to hang out with them to like, you know, now a days is like being able to say like, hey, um, hey, Bela, you want to play the show with us or like. You know, Victor just calling me randomly at midnight asking me if I want to be a guest at his camp in like eight hours. Yeah. I mean, to me, this is a story of like massive persistence. Like you were not going to be told no and you were not going to give up. That's my favorite thing about it. (laughs) Well, the funny thing that you you say that. So and now I feel like some kind of weird egomaniac this, you know, because I already plugged my um, tiny desk, but. Plug everything. We want your music. At the risk of making myself sound worse, have you seen my TED Talk? I haven't seen your TED Talk. Yeah. So, like, you know, the whole point is the whole persistence concept. Mm-hmm. That's the whole thing that I talk about on my TED Talk. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> Shameless plug. Perfect. If you could say one thing about persistence to our listeners right now, what would you say? I'll tell you, I know exactly what I'm going to say because I did a whole TED talk on it. So I'm well prepared. Here's, here's my concept. All right. Yeah. This is a concept I came up with. Sweet. I see like a path, like whatever career path, whatever. I see it like an imaginary hallway. Mm-hmm. Right. Now imagine this imaginary hallway that's infinitely long and there's doors all along the side. Yeah. All those doors are like different opportunities and different things. Right. Now say like, you know, a thousand feet ahead of you, there's a door. And that door is the opportunity to play with Bela Fleck or something. All right. In order to get to that point where I can open the door with my hand, I have to walk over there and be in front of it. Mm. That's a simple concept. In the same way, it was like, if I want to go to that door over there, I have to walk to the door and open it. Right. Now, when you convert that to like life stuff, it's now that's saying, okay, in order to be in a position where I can have this opportunity, I have to walk one foot in front of the other to even get there, to be in a position to where I can even touch the door handle to open the door. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the basic way I think about it. It's not, that's it. That's awesome. That's it. Of course, there's more things that come to it. Like in the analogy, of course, 
you can just, if you're able-bodied, you can just walk or however you want to go there in a straight line and open the door. Right. In terms of career, that means you have to, sometimes you have to wait tables or sometimes you have to, you know, lose a lot of money or sometimes you have to like drive to a lot of concerts and network and sometimes you got to <laughs> do this, sometimes you got to do that. Those are like the steps and those are things that you encounter on your journey. Totally. But the concept of like, you have to be in front of the door to open it. Right. And to get in front of the door, you have to just go in that direction. Nice. So that's what, that's what persistence is, really. You can say no, but I'm going to rename it just for this moment as the hallway of suck. <laughs> I'm down with that. <laughs> yeah, I think in the, in the TED Talk, I have to call it like the hallway of possibilities or unlimited oh, possibilities or something like that. I don't know. That's good, too. Hallway of possibilities. So... Okay, so this actually is is not in a way that far from the river because once you reach that other side of the river of suck and you're accomplishing your goal, you actually see that, oh, I'm not done. There's infinite rivers. There's there's more goals. It never ends. The hallway keeps going and the hallway might split and one door might lead to another hallway with a bunch of other doors. <laughs> yes. Okay, I'm okay. I didn't know this was going to be such a psychologically deep podcast, but okay. <laughs> I have something to add to that. Sweet. Just like you said, uh, you know, the whole concept of um, life is about the journey and not the destination and the thing people say. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing about that, which speaks to what you just said and what I'm saying. The thing they don't tell you about that is there is no destination. Right. The destination is an imaginary concept. It's impossible. There's no thing that you reach. Yeah. You know? Um so hmm. yeah, there there is no destination. <laughs> and I figure I figured that out. I figured that out because um uh, just like a couple years ago. So as you know, as we talked about, I'm a huge Bale Fleck fan. And so I always thought to myself, whenever I have the album in my hand with the promo sticker on it that says featuring Bale Fleck. And it's a physical thing that is mine that I did. I'm going to just like pass out and faint and cry and be like, oh my God, I can't believe this moment. You know, out of all the work that I've done, like this is, this is represented in holding this album in my hand. Yeah. So when, when the time came and the shipment came from disc makers and it came to my front door and I'm like, all right, this is the album that features Dale Fleck on it. And then I opened the box and I held the album in my hand and I was like, all right, now what? Yeah. <laughs> and I realized that the, the thing that I've had in my head the, for all these years of like the end all be all, it was not even near the end of anything. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like one little, you know, it, it was a big step, of course. But in the grand scheme of things, it's like, if I stop now, then what am I even doing? I have to keep going right. or else all of this is a waste. I love that. And the fact that Bale Flex on this album, it doesn't inherently... Um, mean anything it just it's just something that happened you know it's something that happened and sure it's amazing and all those things but like it's not gonna change my life unless I keep taking the steps forward you know <laughs> yeah man I want to go back to Victor Wooten in his camp for a second. 
his book, the music lesson, I consider it to mm-hmm. be like a, like a Bible of some sort of like how to, how to keep your head on straight as you're trying to practice. So this is kind of open-ended, I guess, of a question, but like, what have you learned from Victor in his camp about like practicing and, and reaching those musical goals or, or even just being a person? Cause yeah, man, I've learned a lot from Victor. I, I mean, even at the beginning of quarantine, he did a, uh, he did some kind of private class for this school and the teacher of that school knew I was friends with Victor and knew that, you know, so he actually gave me like the login for the Zoom. So I got to like sit in the back of the class, you know, on Zoom, just like quietly. And just, and he said so many, he said so many gems in the course of 30 minutes that it was insane. <laughs> um, one thing that, that I learned from Victor is, how do I put this? Okay, for example, you take somebody like, you take a guitar player like Pat Metheny or some like great jazz guitar player, right? Mm-hmm. And then you take, you know, like Willie Nelson, right? Willie Nelson definitely knows less things on the guitar than Pat Metheny. There's no question about it. Mm-hmm. Or like some type of virtuoso. But, but Willie Nelson is so tapped into himself of who he is and putting it out there in that kind of way. Right. That it also resonates with more people. You know what I mean? Yeah. So just like the idea of just like genuinely being yourself. And finding out what that means to you and also living like like as opposed to like practicing 20 hours a day like i definitely learned from victor that having real life experience is what's gonna help you to navigate the actual music and that's what's gonna make your music even more powerful is by living life you know so like even for myself at this point having that knowledge from victor and other people um you know, I'm not the guy who spends 10 hours a day in the practice room. I'm, I'm not that guy. There, there are people, Me neither. <laughs> people think that I'm a great steel pan player and that's cool, but there are people who can play circles around me on my instrument, mm-hmm. you know, but the thing that I have is my genuine voice as a composer that is built upon like my life experience. Wow. For yeah. whatever it's worth. And that's Okay. Like there are people I can name you, I can name 20 steel pan players right now that can play circles around me any day of the week. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And also it's, it's easy for musicians to be down on themselves because of that. Like it's easy for musicians to be like, man, there's a hundred players that are, that are way better than me. Yeah. You know? But if you're, if your focus is to be you, like you said at the beginning, like being the best you or whatever, then like that's, that becomes irrelevant. Mm-hmm. So even for me, like, generally, I'm not worried about, I'm not worried that like, my whole thing is minimized because that guy is better than me. Yeah. You know, of course, as a human, that creeps into your psyche every now and then. Uh, but at the same time, like, I know that I got to this point in my career by just doing what I do and not worrying about what the next guy is doing. Totally. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, the USU is a Victor Wooten concept. So, like, I've been talking about Victor Wooten on every episode of this entire podcast from the beginning. So, it's that kind of brings it full circle in a way. But number two, the composing thing, I think, is where this gets real serious because 
you have the time to sit there and think about like what would be like what's this cool sound like let's go down this rabbit hole you don't have to like it doesn't matter how good you are as a player you have the time to sit there and think about it yeah so for me i think composition has been a way to like say something without being the guy who practiced 29 hours a day (laughs) that's an interesting way to put it i can see that (laughs) i mean but you know you can play the steel pan pretty good and i can play the fiddle okay so i'm all right yeah We're both alumni of the American Music Abroad program. Um, I did it in 2011. I went to Southeast Asia. It was the coolest thing. Probably the coolest music tour. No, it's definitely the coolest music tour I've ever done. So I just had to be like, yo, and do you have any cool stories from the road? Like it changed my life and my perspective on the world. So I wanted to gotcha. check in I mean, about do have, that. Do you have any do you have any things from those particular tours, those American music abroad tours? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the biggest one for me was being in Mauritania uh-huh. in West Africa. That was probably the furthest. That's the, that's not the furthest I've been distance wise, but that's the furthest I've been away from like what's normal to me. Yeah. 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 You know what I'm saying? Like it was a whole nother world, you know, <laughs> being in Mauritania. That was like a whole, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's like a whole nother world for me. What, so what was di- um, what was different about it? I mean, I haven't been to Mauritania. Well, I would say this. I, I would say like coming from the US and then going there. Um all right, you gotta listen to the whole statement before you make a judgment about what I'm saying. But like when, when you first, you know, are exposed to, you know, the capital there, Nuakshot. Mauritania, um, it seems like this has got to be like one of the poorest places in the world. Like it has the type of vibe where it's like, man, things look dilapidated. Like visually, it looks very impoverished. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other part about it is like the more you're there, I think I spent like a week there. Like you see how people are living. You see how they're happy, how people are happy. You see that, that people are happy with what they have. Yeah. And that's the biggest thing that took away from that is like, me coming to this place being like, whoa, I've never been to a place like this before, <laughs> you know? But then seeing that the people who are there, who were born there, raised there, been there their whole lives, they're living life like anyone else anywhere. Yeah. So it's just like little basic life lessons like that to where you see like, you know, like when you drive down the road and you see like, okay, there's some houses that don't even have walls. Yeah. Or there's a house <laughs> that only has like three walls right there, you know? And then people are going about their life, doing their things. Um, it was just, it was an eye opening experience. And of course, I, I've been to I've been to impoverished parts of the world before, but like that was pretty eye opening because it was you know a whole another vibe. Like you know sub Sahara, sub Saharan Africa, but Sahara is like right there, so it's not complete sub. It's like it's not Sahara Sahara, but it's like right there. Wow. Um, I could be wrong about that, but. <laughs> It's right on the edge of the Sahara Desert, you know? So you have that whole vibe happening at the same time. Yeah. 
Um, and it also is re- this really interesting mix of cultures between like an Arab, um, like a North African Arab culture uh, mixed with black African culture mixed with like, you know, like the French colonialism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, that was, a, it was a different world for me. Totally. Yeah. I think it's humbling to see. I think it really shows how limited in a way some of our experiences have been. If, if you stay real close to where you grew up and you don't get right. anywhere. So I performed at a, at a youth detention center Whoa. in Mauritania. Yeah. So that, that was, that was really heavy, you know? And at the, for the questions at the end, one of the kids asked, how can music change our life? Yeah. So that was really heavy because like now I'm in a position of privilege almost. It's like mm-hmm. an American with a passport who can do whatever versus a teenage boy in a youth detention center in Mauritania. <laughs> yeah. You know? So like, it's really heavy to kind of address that from my position being there. So it, w- it was just really interesting to like, you know, kind of delve into those, delve into that world for like a week, mm. you know? Do you remember what you told, told that kid? Yeah. You know, I, I basically told him that like, when you dedicate yourself to something, music being the example in this case, like it puts you on a path that will open up opportunities as you weren't that you may not have access to before. Mm. You know, like even I told him, like even the fact that I'm here right now is because I'm a musician. If I went, if I never right. went down the path of being a musician, I would have had the opportunity to do this and that the other thing. You know, hallway of possibilities. Nice. That was the best. That was the best thing that I could say. Yeah, yeah. Um, of course, there's like, you know, geopolitical factors and things like that that also play a role. Mm-hmm. But like, you can't really get into that, like, <laughs> right. in a Q and A session with no. teenagers. You know. No. No. Yeah. Uh, you were going to say something about the embassy. Those are, those were, Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, in Mauritania, there was, um, I felt like they were protecting us in a bubble. Mm. So we would go from like this four star hotel, right. <laughs> get in a van and then go to this other event. And in between the hotel and the event, you see this whole world out there of like, Oh, I don't know if I can cuss on here, but like, like you look out the window and you're like, Oh, shit, this is like a whole nother world out here. But like, we don't get to step foot in it. We just, we go from the embassy to this place, to this event, to the hotel and this. So like, I actually had to ask like, Hey, can, can, can we like go outside of this bubble? Yeah. You know, that's not the French embassy and not the event Oh man, and not the U S embassy and not the four star hotel. And so yeah. they, they coordinated a dinner for us where we actually had dinner with the family. Um, just like out in the middle of nowhere, like, you know, everyone's sitting on the, on the floor, you know, eating with your right hand, nice. out of, everyone eating out of the same big bowl, eating uh, camel meat and rice and right. And that was, yeah, that was a pretty deep experience. Um, wow. Like being in a place that like tourists, tourists don't go there, you know? Right. Um, you only go there if you know someone who's, you know, and you're friends with someone's family or, or some things like that. So, got to see some cool parts of the world like that. Yeah. It's interesting how there are people in pieces of the government that just want to show you a certain version of 
of reality. Like we, we were in Laos mm-hmm. and we had this school on the schedule for basically kids who had absolutely nothing. And then they were like, Oh, by the way, the that's now off the schedule. You guys are free. We can go like shopping. We could go like check out some sites. Just like, wait, but what about those kids? Like we want to go, we want to go meet these kids because they have the least. We're like, get on the phone, do whatever you have to do. Cause someone from, from their government had taken this off. They'd like reviewed, like what, what was on the schedule and, took it off they were supposed to perform with us and it was like man we we gotta go and those kids it's cool because i can go back and like watch the video and be like yeah that really happened and it was like i I mean i i hope it was meaningful to those kids but they were they were sharing their their dance and their their music we would play them a really nice waltz and they like closed their eyes and meditated and uh we just man that's really amazing (laughs) So, I, I had a similar experience yeah. in um, Taiwan, actually. Hmm. We, played at a, um, we played at a school. I think it was like a middle school type of age range, you know? But it was for, like, kids with disabilities. And um, honestly, that was... Going into it, I was, like, really nervous because I was like, I've never done a show like this. <laughs> you know, so like my whole my whole thing was like just get through it. Like just do the show, get through it so we can go home and we can be done with it and then we can mark it off the list. That was my whole thing. <laughs> Honestly, like I was just trying to get it was like I've never been in a situation like this and I was kind of nervous about it. So but we end up doing this show to like a whole gymnasium of Taiwanese kids who had like mental and physical disabilities. Mm. And one thing that happened that I found out about later was that there was a kid that was like eight or nine years old who had never walked before or never even tried to walk. And they've been in a wheelchair their whole life because, you know, something in them was, they didn't have any kind of desire to even try to walk. So they've been in the wheelchair for eight or nine years or since they were born. Um, And during our concert, that kid saw all the other kids like dancing and having a good time. And then that kid told his mom that he wanted to try to walk. And then he tried to walk at my show in Taiwan for the first time in his whole life. Wow. That is some power so music. I, and, <laughs> and the crazy part about it is like, for me, I was like, all right, let's get through this. Let's get through this. Shit. Like <laughs> that was my, that was my thing. I was like, oh man, like this is going to be hard. And I just, I just went there and did my thing and we, you know, and entertained the kids and we did more like a kid friendly show yeah. that wasn't like all this crazy, complicated jazz stuff. Just, we just had fun with kids, but like, you know, but also at the same time, I like to keep my perspective like that so that I don't go into places thinking like, yeah, I'm going to go change some lives, you know, like that is not the right attitude. <laughs> oh yeah. So like, you know, I don't, I don't go into situations like that. I just, I just go into it like, you know what, I'm just going to do what I do. <laughs> period. And I'm going to get through it because like, that's what I'm here to do. And then if something amazing happens from that, then that's great. Nice. But I don't walk into it thinking like that. I had a full band on here a couple months ago, right before all the world went downhill quicker than it was um 
called Che Appalachia. And I asked them, how can music save the world? Because they're, they're a very politically active band. And they said, without music, the world would not be worth saving. <laughs> That's interesting. Because, man, w- w- so once you've been on these tours, it's like you want to do you want to do more. And there's so much that we can't do. Like, we, yeah. like I want to, I want to change the world. I want to make it a better place. But how, how do we do that? Really? Like, you know, if, if there's kids without clean water, there's kids without enough food. I'm just like, here, check out this cool music, you know, like, I- <laughs> right. <laughs> Man. So, you know, my answer to that, first of all, I don't really, I don't know if I agree with that statement that, Ah, without music, life would not, or the world wouldn't be worth saving. Whatever. That's that's a that's a strong statement because you know, <laughs> I get what they're trying to say. I get the sentiment, but that's a little. You mean to tell me there's no music, the world's then the world can die and that's okay? Like no, like that's not cool either. <laughs> <laughs> so fair enough. I don't really know what the answer is to that, but I, I will say that um. You know the reason that things are how they are right now is like a series of chains of events from the dawn of time. Mm. So like, it's hard to like, no one thing is going to change everything. That's just not how this works. Like however many years it took for the earth to be what it is now. I mean, a lot went into making it like that. Yeah. So I think that all we can do is just, you can only do what you can control within your reach. So like, yeah, sure. You playing your instrument it might not make somebody's water clean in another country. Um, that's a really daunting task. You can't undo thousands and thousands of years of consequences. Right. You know? So, so I mean, I think the only thing you can do is just do the best. Everybody can do the best they can do. Yeah. You know, whatever that means for them. Like, at this point, that's that's the best that anyone can do. Because I mean, <laughs> I mean the world's the world's been crazy. You know, I would say the uh, the world's crazy, but the world's been crazy. You know. Instrumental music is not meaningless. It means something, even if there's no words. Your music has very interesting titles, I think. Um, right. But I'm I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you could zoom in on your new album, the Mind State music, because you've got. I'm just looking at a track list here. I, you've got the mouse, the man, the mud, the mad, the mean, and the maze. So right. tell me about that. What does it mean? Okay, so I will first address the part about the titles in general. Like, yes, um, like for me, the titles of my music are extremely meaningful um, because that's like the only linguistic part that I have to convey any message because it is instrumental music. Right. So the title has to spark something. Yeah. So I'm very particular with my titles. Um, but 
like all the music, the music that I write, it all comes from somewhere. So like there, even though there are no words in it, there's always some kind of like meaningful thing behind why I wrote something or how something was written and all that stuff. Um, so in terms of the Mind State music album, we shouldn't get into it all the way. I can, we can delve, okay. we can like dip our big toe into it sure. because it's super heavy. It's that's a podcast in itself. <laughs> all right. Sure. So Mind State music is basically. It's kind of like autobiographical in a lot of ways. It's like an autobiographical hmm. look at a time or at a certain particular time frame that I was in and things that I was dealing with psychologically revolving around a relationship. Cool. You know, not to get too deep into it, but I've been married a couple times in my young life already. <laughs> and, you know, I'll, I'll just say it. Um, my, my second marriage was a huge we'll call it inspiration for this, for the mindset music album. Like psychologically I was going through a lot and I kind of put it all into that record. Hmm. So each one of those movements, there's six movements and six tracks. Cause it's, a, it's, a, it's technically a concerto, which a concerto is like an or like an orchestral piece where there's a soloist with an orchestral accompaniment. But in this case it's a steel orchestra as opposed yeah. to like a symphony orchestra. Yeah. But it's written as a concerto. Um, so each of those movements represents a different psychological concept. And I'm gonna run I'm gonna run down them, but sure. I'm not gonna get too deep into it because like it would open up too many cans of worms. Um <laughs> so okay, the first track is called uh The Mouse. The mouse is so all these things are almost kind of like psychological concepts, just like fake Buddha's inner child was mm -hmm. one of the psychological concepts that I put in the title. So mind state music is about just different parts of psychology. So first track is what the mouse, the mouse is about, you know, being in a place that you don't belong and having to survive in the same <laughs> way that there's a mouse in a house who has to like sneak around to get food or like, you know, has to worry about this happening. It's about like, it's about surviving in a place that you're not supposed to be. Hmm. The man is a very deceptive tune that's about the psychology of like thinking that you um, thinking that you are adequate. I'm going to say like thinking in, in your head that you're adequate in a certain situation, but in reality, you're not fit to be in that situation. Hmm. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, the concept of the, the concept of the man is like, you know, like, yeah, I'm the man. Like I, I have it going on. Like, I know what I'm doing, blah, blah. And so that tune, though it evokes that type of confidence, I kind of wrote the chords and wrote the melodies to be really deceptive. Hmm. So it's like, um, it's like thinking that you are the man, but in reality you're not. That's what it's really about. And at, and if, at the end of the tune, there's all these musical cues that shows that it's like your bubble burst and it's like really deceptive. Hmm. It's a really deceptive tune. But everyone likes that one because it sounds really happy and it sounds really dancey. <laughs> but it's really like a deeply psychological tune. <laughs> it sounds like, you know, like a Caribbean party or something, you know? Right. <laughs> the third tune is what? The, the mud? mud? Yeah, the mud is, is, a, is a concept about like being really stuck in a place. Um, the visual representation of that for me is I imagine like running a race of life. You know, mm -hmm. um, 
like you're running in the race of life and then you fall flat on your face into the mud. But the crowd around you, that's an audience, like on the sidelines, they're all cheering. <laughs> oh. But they're, but they're also not even realizing that you've fallen face first in the mud. They're just there cheering like, you're the man, like keep going, like we're big fans. And they're not even looking at the track and see that you're falling on your face. And they're still just cheering and thinking, and that's a really deep one. I don't want to get too far into that because that's like, that's a really deep one. But if you listen to the end of that, if you yeah. listen to the end of the mud, at the end, there's like this really weird key change with this like really crazy glimmer that happens musically. And that's to represent like being stuck in the mud, but then looking up and seeing, oh, cool. I see the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I should get up and keep running. Yeah. So I represent all those concepts musically within the song. That's awesome. Uh, the mad is pretty simple. The mad is just about the expression of like uncontrolled, unbridled anger <laughs> and yeah. And just like, not necessarily from me, but some like, you know, toward me. Sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's about that. And I kind of put encapsulated that into, you know, a piece of music. And then the next one is the mean, uh, the mean is about the feeling of being mean to other people mm. because it's really like a sadness. That's it's like really a sadness that's within a person that make that, that can allow them to be mean to someone else. Yeah. So like that piece, that piece of music is like capturing that feeling. Wow. And then the maze is the last track and the maze is about navigating all of those things but it's very inconclusive. This, like even at the end of the song, the maze is very inconclusive, which signifies that like this is a cycle. Like we're in it, and there's 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 no way out. Almost, there is a way out. But like in the course of this album, you don't. There is no way out. Like there's no happy ending in, in the album. It's like here we are, and and now after all these emotional roller coasters, the last track is the maze, and we don't get out of it. Wow. So like all all those emotions are represented in those six songs. Um, and the only thing that I have to allow the listener to get the inner scope of my thoughts are the song titles and the album artwork. Wow. Other than that, people have to literally talk to me to understand what the music's about, or they can come up with their own interpretations. So do you have, is that available on vinyl so we can have a giant version of it? I wish it were, but I don't have any vinyl actually of any of my albums, unfortunately. Okay. But I, I would like to change that one day. Just curious. So, Get it in the mail. Put it in your CD I mean, player. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll put it like this. <laughs> I'll put it like this. Because I'm, I'm not, I'm not anti-Spotify. Okay, yeah. I'm not, pro, I'm not pro or anti-Spotify. I'm just, sure. it is what it is. Like, this is where we are in life. So, for the listeners, sure, if you buy it and spend your money on it, that's, like, if you download the tracks or if you buy the physical CD, of course, that's like, that goes further in supporting right. um, the cause. But you know, if you listen to a Spotify, that's cool. That's great. Just check it out. We worked really hard on it and yeah. we want people to hear it. So, But you know, this, this album art, which has all this meaning in it, is like three quarters of... I have a big phone screen and this like artwork is very, very small for how meaningful it is. 
Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. That's a really, there's a lot of deep artwork or deep meaning in that artwork, which was done by my friend Adam Ledbetter in LA. And he's a really deep cat. Um, but I, I talked to Adam Ledbetter about all, everything I just talked to you about, about mm -hmm. all the songs and all yeah. the feelings. I, I talked to him about it in depth for hours. And then he created that. That's amazing. Based off of the conversation. Cool. So let's play our listeners a song now. What, what are we going to play him? We are going to uh, play Focus Poem, which is a track off of the album Pillar, featuring uh, Bela Fleck on the banjo.
I just want to thank you again for for your time and for for hanging out with with the river of suck and all the uncomfortable feelings. I really appreciate it. Man, I'm glad to have been part of this and it was cool to talk about a lot of deep stuff. So when we want to go check out your music, what's the best place to do it? What's your website or Instagram? Any any place we can follow you? Yeah, so um I'm I'm really big on Instagram right now because it just seems to be like the perfect digital business card mm-hmm. these days. So yeah. uh, my Instagram is just at Jonathan Scales, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N Scales. And then my, my website is actually johnscales.com, J-O-N-scales.com. Or I just tell people like literally if you, if you Google Jonathan Scales, if you forget about the website, if you get about the Instagram, if you just Google Jonathan Scales and every possible thing comes up, as you know. <laughs> already from using the internet your whole life (laughs) everyone out there nice to support this podcast join the river of suck swim team for just one dollar a month at river of suck swim team.com you can hear all kinds of bonus content and cool stuff that you didn't hear in the normal podcast no one ever said crossing the river of suck would be easy or that you had to do it alone So I want to thank you for giving it a chance. My name is Andy Reiner. My name is Jonathan Scales. Keep swimming.